Welcome to Changing Places, the podcast that believes places are powerful agents of positive social transformation. Each episode, Dean Keith Diaz-Moore from the University of Utah's College of Architecture and Planning will take you behind the teaching, research, and practice at the leading edge of innovation occurring in our college. Through informal conversations, you will learn the emerging issues, why you should care, and what you can do about them to change our world for the better. Welcome back to Changing Places, everyone. I'm your host, Keith Diaz-Moore. Today we're joined by Professor Cord Bowen, Director of the Multidisciplinary Design Program at the University of Utah. Cord is a recognized leader and sought-after speaker on the topic of design education and design strategy. In his time as director of the MDD program, it has gained national attention for its leading-edge approach to design education. Questions and premises just now being raised by the International Future of Design Education Initiative that we'll talk about in a bit seem to be foreshadowed by the innovation that has occurred here at the University of Utah. This is in no small measure due due to the creativity of Professor Bowen. Thanks for joining us today, Cord. Uh, Thank you, Keith. Uh, It's uh, great to be here. In our conversation today, I hope you'll share some of the the radical rethinking of design education we've undertaken here at the U, but also discuss where design education is headed in this rapidly changing world. And to do so, I I mentioned something called the Future of Design Education Initiative that was founded by um, Don Norman. Uh, And that's a joint venture of his design lab at the University of California, San Diego, and IBM's Global Design Group. And one of the core principles espoused by by this future of design education is to strive for inclusivity. In other places, they discuss it as the problem of monoculture in design. First, from your perspective, could you describe for us this, this monoculture they refer to and why inclusivity is so critical to the future of design? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if we talk about what monoculture is, I think they're just in in general social structures. You want to, you kind of want to know what you're getting into. It's probably really easy to understand when we think about doctors and and how they go into the medical profession, um, because we can kind of imagine what that looks like. And design holds the same kind of space um, and has for a long time, mainly so people can understand what they're getting into and how it can work. And oftentimes, uh, especially in the past 150 years, kind of creative work has had to really combine and use really large groups of people to get things moving. And oftentimes those things would get moving faster in other countries and other places than other, just because there was more money, there were more resources. And that ultimately started through education to define a monoculture. And then that would reverberate back out. So a lot of times we talk about the Eurocentric monoculture of design that Mm -hmm. has permeated into American schools, South American schools, and all over the world. And I can see it when I teach in other countries um, that it's there as well. It's almost like the same language and the same kind of teacher is constantly reappearing everywhere. Mm-hmm. The problem that we have quickly found with this is there's a, there, you know, we, we strive to have more inclusivity and, and more equity in education. Uh, but at the same time, we are getting there in some ways. And when more students from diverse backgrounds come in to play, it's very clear. You can see that this doesn't fit them well, this monoculture, this kind of um, we'll call it a hat that you might have to put on, right? Mm-hmm. That sure. maybe they grew up speaking differently and assessing value differently and that their needs were different and maybe the needs of their community were different. So if we start to think about design, we ultimately believe that it should fit the need. 
It should be in service of. Mm -hmm. If that is not a monoculture idea, right? When when we think about that, it's more of a always varied, always flexible kind of result. And so the monoculture doesn't really allow for that to happen. So we end up seeing across fashion and, and furniture and even the apps we use in our phones uh, with this very similar language that permeates without ever really asking the question, could it be different if it came from a different place? We are learning that different voices create different experiences in design. And that's really valuable because it allows places that don't look like the Eurocentric model to have their own voice and to actually move forward uh, and to gain some traction and have value and, and the way that they see and understand and live as a culture. Right. Right. I want to I want to pick up on something there. You were talking about, um, you know, d- thinking of design as as essentially service in right in, in, in service of something. And one of the things that seems to be coming up increasingly in discussions of design education is this notion for uh, I'll call it an aggressive placement of ethics uh, in any design curriculum. You know, discussing issues of responsibility, consequences, privilege, and complicity, and no doubt this ties together with what you're talking about in terms of inclusion. How does the MDD program, our multidisciplinary design program here at the U, place ethics front and center in its design education? I think that's a great question, and the answer is, it's an important answer, what I'm about to say, because it's we didn't start where you think we'd start. I think I... I came to the table with some pretty eye-opening experiences of, you know, being a, a white male in leadership with, you know, existing on a good deal of unearned privilege in arriving in a place in a position where, you know, the, the you know, the culture here is a majority um, Caucasian. Mm-hmm. And being, and coming from a place that had a lot of diversity, I had already come with a lot of information about how my experience was not other people's experiences and how it was inequitable. And so, the first question we asked in the program was not in the curriculum, but was of ourselves. In what ways are we experiencing privilege that our students never will? Ah, and see. how does that affect the classroom? And I always talk a lot about the, the transaction of the grade being kind of like someone having money to pay you for a job. And, that, and understanding that power and that leverage, it, it, it repositioned how we put information out into the classroom. So we looked at that kind of, I'll say it again, transaction. And saying that maybe instead of saying this is how it is, we start asking more questions in the classroom, mm-hmm. that we start all of our projects with a question. And so one of the simpler ways we start is like a lot of design programs will say, okay, say, okay, we're going to design a chair. And that's pretty common because they want to get into manufacturing processes and have students understand ergonomics. Whereas our program begins by saying, what does it mean to sit? And you can imagine that in some world where most students will come up with a chair, some students might say it means sitting on the floor and we don't need a chair. Right. And what that does is it creates a more inclusive conversation and it allows that the individual experiences of students and their voices to come back into the classroom. And then faculty, instead of leading with an idea, get to respond to the student's idea. And that changes the voice completely. And what we found that even in a, on a campus that does have a majority, the conversations became varied even in socioeconomic status or religious background or other things. And the students were just far more, I think they just felt more included in their voice. They were, they were stronger. Mm-hmm. And, but this is also something I've been practicing for a long time. I just like to ask these larger questions because it allows you to get enough perspective that you can include more voices. 
Sure. I, it would also seem to me, uh, from what you just described, that beginning with the, the question, and you, you asked a wonderful one about uh, what is what is it to sit, would also trigger additional opportunities for creativity to to question prevailing assumptions. It does. And what it does is it goes back, I think, to what kind of rubs everybody when they're in design schools, especially highly focused, like if you're in architecture or graphic design or fashion. There's a point in every design student's education where you're like, okay, that's great. Let's say I'm doing a building or I'm doing furniture or something like that. But the question starts to reveal tremendous opportunities in other spaces, whether it's digital platforms or just experience design where someone can behave differently around a product. So I think that those opportunities that you're speaking of, that's kind of what the basis of the MDD program is about. It's more of a generalist approach where we allow students to arrive in places they didn't normally think they would. That's that's fascinating. I want to get to another dimension here um, and, and kind of revisit the, the future of design education initiative I, I mentioned at the beginning. And, and two priorities they have are as follows. One is for design to be evidence-driven. And the second is to develop the leadership skills to be successful advocates for positive transformative change. And, and I have to say one striking revolution I see in the multidisciplinary design program is, is the explicitness and, and compelling nature by which students in the program connect their research to design decisions and do so in a visual, very compelling way. Might you discuss more about this and how that e- effort helps students move into leadership roles? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a it's a good question. For me, the you know, I was trained as an, uh, as an architect. The practice of architecture and the experience of drawing out the building, especially in what we call orthographic projection, which is like looking at it in plan, is an experience that is not actually the building. Mm-hmm. It is a drawing of the building and it reveals information that you cannot know just by photographs and walking through a building. It, 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 it helps you understand organization. It helps you understand layers of systems at work. And from there, I, when I started to peer into industrial design and other ones, I noticed that they weren't doing this. They were just drawing the object. Mm-hmm. And they would, they would take these steps when it was absolutely necessary for manufacturing. But architects were doing it because they wanted to discover this kind of subconscious language or energy that that was in the design. And you could do that through these really pretty specific types of drawing. So we extrapolate that into the program and asking students to draw out experiences. What does it mean to walk across campus? You know, can you draw that path to scale? And then can you alter that path so that it reflects what you're feeling as you're walking? Mm -hmm. Are you in shade? Are you in heat? Mm -hmm. And, you know, do you feel hot? Are you irritated? Is it always uphill, downhill? And then what, what that drawing allows is it just like the building, it reveals all these subconscious experiences that are happening. And it, it starts to tell you where to look for your research, whether you're doing observational research or collecting existing data. And what's really great about that is you can hear it, it, it creates a really nice connective story where the student can actually validate their process by talking themselves through it, which is really cool. And the visual part of this also ends up revealing uh, things you can't say in conversation on our spreadsheet. Right. Uh, a lot of times, you know, when we bring in industry partners, it's the drawings up there. Just like I never saw it that way. I've been in this industry for 20 years and you just drew it in a way that makes me think differently. You know, to go to that second part of your question, Keith, uh, the leadership is really about a confidence to take risk and the kind of reason and understanding what the risk is. 
And this is what companies really appreciate about our students when they come on board. The comment I hear the most is, yeah, I can walk out of the office and the, your, your students will just do the work and it'll come back and I can pick from something. They've, they understand the risk. They know how to pad it. They know how to put, put in extra things and look at the broader scope, but they also understand where they need to be. And I think that, that, you know, over time, you know, you start that with drawings and then you manage people and projects and then eventually, you know, larger things um, happen from there. So that for me, that's where the leadership comes from. They just ultimately have a confidence in, in their work and are able to assess the risk of their work. Right, right. Interesting. You know, having worked with you for a few years here now, Cord, I, I know from uh, a lot of times your own thinking utilizes what I call an enriched concept of, of craft, the idea of craft. I, I would suggest what you, you're really getting that at is kind of an amalgam of some of the other future of design education principles. And uh, some of the things they talk about is act at the appropriate scale, restore mm. ecological balance, and respecting the importance of place and culture. I'm, I'm just wondering if you might enrich us a little bit in terms of how might design education better further this enriched sense of craft? That's a, um, a really good question. And I might bring a little bit of a, <laughs> some Zen Buddhism and very ancient kind of aspects here is you know, we have this really simple project on day one. Students have to construct a two-inch cube. And we begin the conversation on craft from that, which is if you build it out of a simple cardboard and has that cardboard has a thickness, then how do you get two inches, including the thickness? And, and then how do you use a knife to cut it? And all these things become really great conversation pieces about how design becomes very involved. But what I ultimately tell the students after they've done this thing 10 times, trying to achieve craft, is is really two things, which is, and I and I was actually I made a huge mistake in this earlier in my career. I used to think that craft was a kind of perfection, mm. and it became clear to me that, and to answer these other questions, is that craft is about understanding. It, it's revealed in consistency and how you approach something. That you can do it over and over again, it becomes a craft. The way a musician can constantly get on a stage and play music in a, in a way that's familiar is a craft. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes perfection is needed, like in surgery and things like that. But sometimes also being a little bit loose with it is needed. And you see that in music. And I explained that. And so the students are like, well, I'm frustrated. How do I do this? And I said, well, you'll do it and you'll do it every time when you choose to be present in your work. The minute you are actually in the room and holding the knife and really with the cardboard and not thinking about your failure, not thinking about anything else except for what's in front of you, you'll understand it and it will be effortless. And you'll repeat it. And I think that in the first part of your question, this idea of applying this back to communities and, and social impact and other things is reminding students that no matter what's in your head and what you're thinking, when you work with others, you have to be present. You have to really learn how to listen. You have to really learn how to accept and allow the information that's coming to you in a way that is unbiased and without any kind of interference of your own thoughts. And that kind of, it, it, you know, there's part part of that's a little bit mystical, but part of it is kind of the reality of how good observational research and working with clients works. Right, right. That that was fascinating and, and beautifully stated. You know, design is is so ex- expansive now. What what designers could do, and and with that, you know, the, the the pressing concerns and complexities that are facing them have have just grown exponentially here in this 21st century. And I've been taken, quite taken with um, the, the programs and really your uh, instructional sense that 
in order to address these complexities and these concerns that they really feel quite closely, that students absolutely need. There's, there's an essential component of, of inspiration and motivation as much as knowledge and skills. And right. why do you believe this is so critical in design education? Well, I mean, if we ask if, if, if as design educators, if the students and their experience are ultimately our client and objective, right? If we think about it like a design problem, mm-hmm. if we are to, to truly be present and really see the student for what they are, and it doesn't, this is really regardless of age. I think anybody entering into the academic space has a really special energy. It's unlike anything you'll, you'll understand in other aspects of life. They come knowing that they're going to change. And if you can see that on day one, you'll immediately also see that there is this boundless energy and mm-hmm. willingness to be flexible. And with that, if you, if you put, if you put inspiration and passion with that, it, it ten, it's more than double the effort. It's like tenfold. And they want to accomplish, if we just took an 18 year old as an example, I don't know an 18 year old that doesn't want to believe that they can fly, you know, that they don't want to believe that they can be the next big thing. Right. And oftentimes in design education, we stop them and we tell them to put that away and be serious and do these things. And instead, what I, I think is you give them a little bit of the more responsible structure, but then on the other side too, let them really push as hard as they can and see what comes out. And then, and you know, I always tell young faculty too, the most important thing is that students need to know you're excited about this too, because you are the future. You are, you are in some way a filter they look through to see themselves. Right. And, you know, we obviously never want to mold them in our own image. We want to offer space as faculty, but how do we do that in a way where, you know, the world wants to be inspired and I don't think people want that taken from them. So design's a great way to do it. You can ask really empowering questions. Um, and then you have to obviously tease out the ego and like, you know, making sure that they're doing it for the project and not themselves and all those things and learning sure. how to be, or as I say, you never own the project. You will always own your process. Yeah. And that's where the passion can be stored and the endless energy. Fascinating. Sadly, Cord, we're nearing our time already, but I do like to ask a recurring question of, of all the guests of the podcast. As you know, our college is the first architecture and planning college in the nation to espouse what we call an ethic of care uh, mm-hmm. to underlie our professional education. So let me ask, why do you care and why do you think others should care about the education of future designers? Yeah, I mean, I can answer that in kind of two parts. I think that first off, this, this notion of the ethic of care in our college is really unique. I, you don't hear it in other places um, because it's it's helps frame and rearrange perspective when students engage their work and that's really important. And and this idea of caring, you know, I, I always tell students like, you know, there's two ways to care. There's a way that can really hurt you, you know. <laughs> it's basically when you it's when you care for others without caring for yourself. Mm-hmm. The designers have to remember to take good care of themselves. And they have to to be as healthy as possible so they can be available to others. I I think that it's important because for a long time and this is what where design education is going, and I see it in a lot of places, is we're starting to realize young designers are not just leaders of design firms, but they can be leaders of larger organizations and politically, socially, uh, in, in companies. And it comes because they are taught to care beyond just the drawing, right? It goes beyond what we talked about even earlier. 
And I find that important because when you couple those things together, this idea of caring about the client or the experience and the drawing and just kind of bigger things, Mm -hmm. you get bigger changes, bigger shifts. You get a visioning that doesn't happen in other places because of this unique perspective designers have to look at the world, have agency about how they look at it and introduce new languages to people, whether it's visual or just experiential. And I mean, I care so much because after 20 years of doing this, I can see the change. You know, small and big, it doesn't matter. The change is what's important. And it's always for the better. I just think it's absolutely incredible and so special that, you know, I get to experience this space every day and participate in students' education around it. Well, Cord, uh, that was beautifully stated, and I can't thank you enough for sharing your inspirational wisdom with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Well, we'll need to have you back and continue the conversation. We just got the tip of the iceberg, didn't we? Sure. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Talk about this stuff forever. Absolutely. Professor Cord Bowen is the director of the Multidisciplinary Design Program at the University of Utah. If you found this work interesting, you can find out more by visiting U of U. Dot design. I'd like to end by thanking our listeners for taking the time to join us and spreading the word using the hashtag Changing Places. On behalf of the Changing Places podcast, hosted by the College of Architecture and Planning at the University of Utah, I am Dean Keith Diazmore. Take care, everyone.